uh, Kenny, do your thing. And we're on the air. Yes, we're on the air. Welcome, everybody, to the Soundbroker Mastermind Group, a place where you can come to share your life experiences right now. That's right. You could share your life experiences. Um, actually, the idea is a group of like-minded people in the industry uh, to help go through the times of these COVID miserable times to make the best of a bad situation. And so that we're all here and we come out on the other side, sm smelling like a rose. I guess that's what, that's, that's what the whole idea about this is so that we're going to share. Now, normally I have a guest speaker, but today I decided against that because it's just too much work. <laughs> Truth and advertising. It's just too much work. And the reality is, is that I've got I've got something to I've got something to uh, to celebrate right now, because um, 22 years ago, I got my very first paycheck from soundbroker.com. Uh, Soundbroker started 23 years ago. Who's ever sharing the screen? You? Please stop that. All right. Who is that? I don't see it. Somebody I don't see any screen share. I saw I saw I a guy standing next to a console. I saw a guy, a young guy standing That's next to a I console. Saw. I thought you were going to say, Jan, that that was the first console you sold or something. <laughs> no, the but first when, you, when that picture came console, up, I, I was looking for a picture of the first console I sold, but mm. I I couldn't find it. You know, somebody's sharing, and uh, it must be it must be Tina. I think Tina's sharing. I'm not sharing. I don't somebody see sharing. sharing. Who's, somebody no, sharing. Nobody's share. sharing. You, uh, you know what, Jan? Sharing is caring, so it's okay. Yes, I mean, on. I guess yep. I'm seeing it on my, I'm seeing on my end, uh, but you guys are not seeing it. So Maybe you're sharing. Not seeing it, Jan. Yes, not I could be. It. You're 100% you're correct. I could be the one that's sharing it, but uh, I don't, I, I would actually think that I am not. So anyway, today we're going to cover a few things. Basically, uh, we're going to talk about the highlight of our careers. Uh, I think we're going to do that. Best and worst show experiences. Um, I also want to introduce a new segment called Worth My Time segment that we will share something about what's worth our time other than work. Uh, the tips and tricks. I've got so, a couple of tips and tricks about real life that I want to share with you guys. And of course, we're going to go into some news. So um, what I would say to you, if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook, I highly recommend you click the like button and share it, or you DM us so that you could be part of the Zoom group and be on Zoom with us so you could be part of the panel. Um, and so that is what I say. But just remember, you know, show some love, uh, give us a like and share it, man. That's all I'm going to say about that. Okay, uh, the only upcoming event that I hear about right now is Cinecom 2021 just announced their dates for the 23rd to the 26th of August. So that's going to be here in Las Vegas, and that's pretty exciting stuff that at least some shows are being booked. Now, one of the things that we also wanted to talk about was auctions, and there are a lot of auctions going on. So I thought what I would tell you about is that the All-Star Sound auction uh, took place on the 11th. Metrovision took place on the 13th. There's a surplus auction uh, from event specialists taking place on the 19th. Video West is on the 30th, and Bexel just announced a um, an auction on twelve ten. Now, Ron, you went to an auction, right? Um, I believe you went to an auction, and what did you want to What did you want to report back on that auction that you went to? Well, that was the Westbury one. So there was two different auctions that they had for Westbury. There was an original one 
where uh, they were clearing out a lot of gear. It was uh, some pretty amazing deals, actually. And uh, we, uh, we ended up getting some stuff out of that. Um, but then they shut it down. Um, apparently, the banks found out about it or some, something happened and someone found out about it. So they shut it down. So then they, uh, they had it again yesterday. They, they had it, the whole thing up and running again. So, um, yeah, we ended up buying some, um, some speakers out of it. It was a, a really good deal. They had a, uh, Westbury was a combination uh, Adamson house and an EV house. So they had uh, quite, a bit of, uh, quite a bit of gear. And uh, yeah, so a lot of people took advantage of it. I mean, we actually lucked out because like I said earlier, a company from Australia was also a big Adamson house, um, had, had purchased almost everything. And then at the last minute they backed out. So uh, we were, uh, they went to the, of course, the next, um, you know, next guys at bid and that was us. So we were, we ended up doing some pretty amazing uh, deals on, on current gear that's, uh, that worked out well for us. Uh, there was another auction that was uh, here, which was uh, uh, another Canadian company, Ashton White. And, and that was all EAW uh, gear seven, uh, the, the line array boxes. I'm not familiar as much with the AW boxes, but, um, and uh, I don't know how they fared out, but they, it was a fairly extensive auction. Like they sold a lot, they, you know, there was a lot of gear. They really cleaned house on that one as well. So were, now, were, they, feel- were those auctions happening because those companies went out of business or they're yet to go out of business? Well, you know what? Um, Westbury was gone. I mean, they've now declared bankruptcy. So that originally, I think it was to try and get money so they could retool and re- re-go. But uh, that company, uh, Westbury, is officially gone. I mean, it's probably the first Canadian production company uh, in, in uh, one of the first in Canada, really. Um, and uh, so, I mean, it, you know, it's a sad, sad day for that company to go. I'm sure if you knew Benny at all, you, you would have known, you know, the original guys from that company. Um, I'm sure they're, they were pretty bummed out about it. And then Ashton White is, uh, his company been around for probably about 25, 30 years. And equally, I mean, they're still there. I think they just cleared out about half of their inventory and it was probably the B stock that was was there. I don't know why they would have done that, whether it would have been to get rid of space, um, you know, so that they could cut their warehousing down or whether it would have been for, you know, banking reasons or whether it would have been, we don't really know. But it was a really extensive list of, of gear, like staging. They had a you know an SL100 as well that went, and so there was a lot of uh, a lot of gear that uh, that went. Several line arrays, lots of lots of power, lots of uh, you know everything down to like scaffolding and stage decks and uh, uh, plexiglass. And I mean, so once you start to you know you see that kind of stuff, it's a clean house kind of. Uh, a deal too so um you know that and it could have been just a clear space because you know up in toronto where those guys are all from i mean it's expensive so i mean i'm i'm outside of toronto so it's it's a lot cheaper but down there you know real estate is expensive as can possibly be yeah i heard the sl 100 went for a really good price somebody mentioned to me it went in the in the 60s around the 60s which would be a pretty good price but then when you think there's an 18 percent auctioneer fear fee on top of that all of a sudden it doesn't become such a good price and and i've spoken to to the flynn brothers i've spoken to paul flynn who runs him and his brother run flynn auctions who are doing most of the auctions right now or a lot a good good bulk of the auctions uh basically 
um, what they tell me is that the money that they're getting is pretty great, but they're also doing something else. Now, Sean's not in the room, unfortunately, because he's working today. And I also have where are they now segment uh, of what people are doing right now. Um, so basically, a few of the people in our room right now uh, are actually working on jobs and they can't make it, which is really amazing that people are still working. And, and I'm very happy for everybody that is working right now and can't be here. One of them, just to, to, just to stay on the auctions before we go off on that, um, there is, so, so anyway, what I heard was, is that Flynn is now going into places and rather than auctioneering, they're actually looking at the inventory, assessing the value, and then making an offer to the seller saying, look, we'll buy all of this at a certain rate, which is lower than what they would get if the auction, but they're guaranteeing that everything will go. So if the company's going out of business and doesn't have place for the gear, Flynn will make them an offer to buy everything and then sell everything as, as if it was an auction. And then of course, also charge their 18%. And they so make lots of money that way. They make lots of money that way. And, and but, look, but the thing for the seller is it's guaranteed that amount. They get a flat amount. They don't have to think, oh no, is that going to sell or not? You know, or is it going to sell for enough? They just get a flat fee. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is. And then of course, on the good stuff, um, you know, you always have to be careful if you're going to an auction, you always have to be careful that they don't have a shill in the audience to raise up the value of what you're auctioning, what you're trying to buy. So one thing I will tell you about an auction, there is such a thing called auction fever. If you're not familiar with it, basically what it means is that it becomes a game to you and you have to be the winner of the game. And a lot of people overbid on stuff and they end up buying something not <laughs> realizing it. it is the auction yeah. fee and they actually yeah. spend retail price on it but they say i won the auction i won yeah I won. yeah they, they totally forget about that the commission or whatever that fee is called and they forget about that and they go oh i got such a great deal but then when you add on the, the fee it's like that's not such a great deal oh why did i do that you know well the great that's thing right. about the canadian auctions is that for for you guys is that our dollar is still in the toilet. So, I mean, you know, even though that 18% is on there, you're still 30%, 25 to 30% less on our dollar. So, you know, anybody buys a, a 100 for 60 grand is, you know, you're really getting it for That's 60 grand Canadian, which is like, you know, 20 grand American. Is that it? Yeah, yeah pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And also, you, you know, unless you have the facts yourself, it's always possible that you're not getting the full story. And so that's why I have a disclaimer this is what I heard, you know, um, you might've heard that, uh, that, uh, you know, I wear ladies clothes at night, but that's just a rumor. You know, if you oh, have, come to on, we know that's true. Clothes, then you don't know if it's true or not. You just have to imagine that. But um, also there's another company that, that, that is making some changes and Ken Porter mentioned it to me and that's Morris. And uh, I've called them at first. I'm going to ask Ken to add a little bit of information, what he has, and then I'll uh, supplement it with what I know. Ken, what do you know? There's not a lot clear right now. It's just that they paused the uh, operation to stop the bleeding on the uh, uh, production side of the business to keep in the install and uh, sales portion going. But they've uh, terminated all the employees and brought everything back in the warehouse and, and stored. They don't know if they're going to come back or if they're going to come back in what condition that's still out to be determined. Yeah. 
also one other thing along the lines with Morris. Now I spoke with Morris and they have, they have multiple divisions and it seems their install division is still going strong. And so they haven't made a decision what they're going to do with the gear, but I'm sure they have a lot of gear that they would like to move and they haven't really made a decision whether they're going to go with an auction or whether they're going to uh, just sell it privately or go through a sound broker or, or any of the other brokers. So that's, that's always uh, possible. Now, one other thing that people were talking about Solatech, and you might remember one of our members, uh, Brad, Brad Nelms, is now, um, I believe his title is uh, West Coast Sales Manager. Ken, is that right? And he's That's working for Solatech. And so evidently they must be doing some business. Plus um, SoundPro, they bought out SoundPro, Ron, uh, Ron Syntex company. I believe that's how we pronounce it. Ron Sinto? Sito? Does anybody Sinto. know? Ron is that a Vegas-based company, Jan? No, Florida. Uh, yeah, it's ProSound. ProSound, yeah. Yeah, Ron Sinto. And so they were all and in back. Solotech bought them, you say? Solotech bought them. They also and they purchased stage equipment and lighting, and Miami Stagecraft as well. So they're they're very strong in my backyard here. Yeah, and look at all this information you're getting. If you're not if you're not tuned into the show, you don't know what you're missing. I'll tell you, you don't know what you're missing. But we do have a lot of like information. Crazy. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Yes, they did yes. the same here in Canada. They've been buying out everybody, everybody that they, that they think they can afford to buy. They've been buying out. So it's like Live Nation and venues, right? Isn't Live Nation buying up venues that are you know dying right now? Yeah, I think they have a bunch of Quebec money behind them. So I mean, you know, when when you've got that, you've certainly got a bit of a break. When you've got the Quebec is definitely a different kind of animal, right? So I mean, I think they're now a partner in Cirque du Soleil as well. So I mean, it's a you know, it's a whole different being. Uh, the companies in Quebec are a whole different animal than everywhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I see the, you know, it's, it's, there is activity going on in our business and people are working. I mean, there are, there are sales happening, especially on install side, maintenance sides. And that's really where I think we should all be focusing on the, you know, going to the venues and saying, hey, this is the perfect time to do maintenance. And so if you have a, if you have venues that you service or there's venues in your marketplace, this might be the opportunity to go in there and say, hey, look, uh, let's go uh, let, you know, we can come in and we can renovate your, you've been, you, you never have to, time to do it when you're busy. So now you're not busy. This is the great opportunity to, and give a little people some work so that when people do come back, you're giving them their money's worth of being in a great venue with good sound and lights and video, you know, so that's the, that, the, that's yeah, the only question is, do the, do the venues or do the facilities have the finances to support that right now since they're not probably taking any money in, right? So it's all about finances. Well, the question is, is where is that money? Did Live Nation, did Live Nation and AEG give the theaters the money? Did they give them the deposit that they have this money that they can, that they can do things with? Or is Live Nation holding it? That's something I don't know. But I would, I would think that there is money in them, their hills right now. And as the vaccines start to come really on the forefront right now, I mean, Pfizer, Moderna, uh, there's an, uh, um, um, AstraZeneca is about to introduce their, their biotech. And now they've got these vaccines that they're saying are 95% effective. 95% effective, that's amazing. 
Don't you think? I mean, you know, like the, the, the I believe that the actual flu vaccine is only something like 80% effective, you know? So if we right. can get 95% and then they could figure out a way how to get it to the people, um, then all of a sudden things are going to be coming back to normal. Yeah, and um, if, if if that's we've had possible. basically two uh, companies introduce vaccines or talk about they're in final stages of vaccines in the last couple, three weeks. If we keep on that, on that, uh, at that pace, we'll have a number of companies bringing their uh, vaccines to final stages uh, by the end of the year. It's pretty cool. Right. And I also want to talk to you about another thing. Soon we're talking in this and we moved in the, the right now, um, the UK, there's a company in the UK that they've come out with a 20 second coronavirus test. And um, so, and that was a, uh, in the financial post. So uh, by the way, when I say something that I've read in, in the paper, uh, we'll put the link in, Tina will put the link into the chat if you wanna see more about it. And here's something that's really cool along those lines is United Airlines has got a test program right now on a flight going from Newark to London where you actually will be tested when you get to the airport and then once you pass the test, which is a rapid test, they'll put you right on a plane and they'll put you in an area so everything goes back to normal for you. So, so just like just like Marty uh, was saying last week or whenever it was that uh, it's all about this testing. If they can get this 20 second testing happening, oh man, it changes everything pretty much. Yeah, and Ticketmaster, there's an article in Live Design Online about Ticketmaster right now. And they've and they're developing a plan to check fans uh, just as just before they get to the arena. So basically, you have to get a test before you before you come, and you have to present proof of that. And that, I put the link in there as well. And then when you get there, they do another rapid test, and boom, it's back to normal. So that is something that they're they're that they're seriously looking at to get back people into concerts. So with all of this positive news. It's only a matter of time before Michael Strickland writes me another email and says, guess what? We've got money, you know? Um, and I got to get, I want to, Michael, if you're listening, I want to tell you, you're more than welcome to come back on to the show here. But the reality is, is that I appreciate what you're doing. Every one of us appreciates what you're doing because basically we know you're just banging your head against the wall right now. And it's got to feel good when it stops. So that's all I can say. Hey, now. Hey, 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 Hank Kingsley was in the room, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Um, the other thing that I want to point out as far as news goes is the Rolling Stones, just uh, the Rolling Stone magazine uh, just put up a festival announcement lineup. So uh, that'll also be in the room. I really didn't get a when chance. When is to that for? Well, when, is that, when is that festival? Uh, right now? Well, let me see, Tina. Let's see. Where's the link? Let's see if I could Here it uh, comes. Let's Here see come. if we get it. Uh, Rolling Stones. Uh, I think it's actually about the uh, about the Ryman Auditorium to host a live aid benefit. Oh, 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 okay. Ken, do you know anything about that? Very. A reporter in Nashville, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't heard much about that one. Okay, so the link the link is the link is in uh, in the chat, and we'll we'll move on. And the last thing that I wanted to say about the about the news thing, the Event Safety Alliance has released the six months update to the reopening guide, and that link is also there. So if you want to see what what those guys are doing, um, then you can go you can go look at it. And one more bit of news that, that I wanted to sh share with you guys, and that is the Harmon Group. Uh, 
If you purchase any Crown app right now, what Crown has done is they're extending your warranty to six years for free and to encourage people to buy from them. Uh, if you order anything by uh, the end of the year, 1231, and it can ship before March 31st, they'll keep the old prices for you. So, so people are doing things out there to get, get, get things moving in the industry. And as we all are now, not everybody is working all the time, but you, and you have to look for alternative gigs, but I'm back in March, I sold a, 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 a venue profile to, uh, to uh, Deep South Audio. And when it closed down, I, I didn't push him for it. And basically uh, I called him the other day and this guy now is mowing lawns for a living. But don't get me wrong, because when I first heard, when Ken Porter first told me that Marvin is mowing lawns, I said to myself, oh my God, why did, he, why did he send me the money for the console right now? You know, I feel bad about it. But the lawns that he's mowing, he actually has a title for it, and it's called Industrial Vegetation. <laughs> and what he's doing is he, well, Ken, you want to fill him in what he's doing? He's mowing pipelines and uh, electric line right aways. So he told me that he gets, um, he gets, um, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to share the exact number, but hundreds of dollars for a mile of, of, of mowing. And the power company just hired him to mow 6,000 miles. And he said to me on the phone today that he's, he's never made, he's never made as much money in sound and lighting as he is now mowing lawns. <laughs> But as I always say, it's not about the money. And he just, he says he can't wait. He can't wait to get back to doing sound and lighting. That's what he wants to do. And that's what we all want to do. We, we want to do sound and lighting. So, you know, you know, that's, that, that's, that's, that's what I got to say. It's, 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 but people are doing things. One of my other good friends and clients, uh, Steve Ligorio, um, and, uh, his company is called, uh, I believe, Southwest. Is that what it's called, Tina? Um, Steve Ligorio's company. Anyway, he was hired by the city of El Paso because that's where he's out of. And he built, he, 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 his crew built all the emergency hospital beds that they're doing there. He, he, he actually assembled it for, for, uh, for, the, for, the, uh, for, the, uh, for the government. And so um, that was something that he was able to do to get labor out there. So people are looking at very creative ways to make money. And I'm really, I'm really proud to know you guys. That's all I could say. Does anybody have any ideas of what they're doing to enhance their income while things are tough? I'm selling plasma. I've just gone out and sent a little, uh, I've been donating blood, you know, that, no, not me. I, I, I'm having my wife continue working. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm following Dave's advice, and for the first time, my wife is out earning me, which I love. That's that's good. That's good. Oh, I see what it is. Uh huh. Okay. So, anyway, um, let's see. What else did I wanted? To, what else did I want to cover? Basically, all right. So I was talking about some tips and tricks. Does anybody have an Apple Watch? Do you have an Apple Watch? The, I found the yes. coolest app that I want to share with you guys 
it is the coolest app. It's called Flick Time, F-L-I-C-K-T-I-M-E. And what it does is it turns your Apple Watch into a keyboard by pushing this button here. Let's see if I, my wrist doesn't go that way. You can see it. But by pushing that button, it gives you a keyboard that is, whoops, which way am I going? Uh, there, it gives you a keyboard. So now you can, now what you can do is now you can actually text from your watch and you have a full keyboard and it's very, very, very cool. Up to now, the only thing you could do is use your quick responses, but now, and it swipes as well. You don't have to, but it's very accurate. It's super accurate. It's accurate enough that I wanted to bring it up in the mastermind group. So if you have an Apple watch, uh, I, I, I highly recommend uh, this, this flick time app. And so it works, I bet it works with what, email and text and things like anything. that? Or it anything. It becomes a separate keyboard. So what you could do is what you could do, I've only used it with texting because basically it's a standalone keyboard and then it tells you where you could send it. So, um, you know, you could, you, you could Google it, look it up, whatever. Oh, you can wow. use uh, a speak, you can use a uh, speech to text too on your Apple watch too. Like if someone texts you, you can hit the microphone and then you speak what you want to say and it Spells is it all that right? right I, I didn't see that. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a yeah, better. There's a little answer. microphone that, over Josh, there, but this thanks. is this is very yeah. cool. This app is app called that again, Jan. What's it called? It's called Flick Time. F L I C K T I M E. One word. F L I C K. Mm -hmm. T I M E. And it's really a cool app. So anyway, so here we are. Um, does anybody have anything they want to share right now before I uh, I, I uh, share what I want to share? Anybody? Well, so it was, uh, it was uh, a long time ago today. It was 22 years ago that I got my first paycheck from soundbroker.com. And uh, for those of you who don't know the story of, of, of Soundbroker, basically I was doing stand-up comedy at the time and I was more or less starving to death when a guy by the name of Morris Leiter, I don't know if anybody knows Morris Leiter, called me up and basically said to me, hey, I got a job for you at Disney. And I thought it was going to be either, you know, telling jokes, warming up the audience. And he said to me, no, it's selling equipment. And I said to him, Morris, I can't do that. I'm a comedian. And without missing a beat, he said, that's the funniest thing you've ever said to me. Anyway, Morris wouldn't let it go. He, he would not let it go. And he convinced me that it would be in my best interest through guilt, through guilt, by telling me all the jobs Somehow he had remembered every job he had ever given me. When you wanted to work for Prince, did I tell you I was a comedian? When you wanted to do that job for Phil Collins, did I tell you I was a comedian? When you wanted to work for Elton Thank John, you for calling Soundbroker. This that, is that, Tina Hamasis. Tina, you got to mute your mic, please. Anyway, so basically, so that's, so basically he guilted me into doing it and then in three weeks, I made more money than I'd ever made in my life doing anything. And I, I, I said to myself, I've been doing stand-up comedy for two years and I went through all my savings and I'm broke. And here I did something I don't even want to do and I made money and I had to readjust my thinking. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to get a real job. And I couldn't get a real job. Nobody would hire me. But David Sherman, who's not in this room right now, David Sherman said to me, he says, hey, listen, I got a job for you over at, at, at JBL. We got a, a warehouse full of stuff that we need to sell. And what you did for Disney, 
Why don't you do it for us? And I begged them to hire me as an employee and they refused. And so basically one thing led to another and I sold, I was selling the stuff, not knowing that it was really the seeds and stems of what JBL had because they had moved it across the country multiple times uh, in a garage sale. And I didn't know any better. So I just put together a marketing plan, started selling it. And um, these, this guy calls me up and says, I need to buy these amps that you have marketed. And I said, well, I just sold them. And he says, well, I need, I need 10 of them. And I remember I was selling those amps for like a thousand bucks a piece and I was making 10%. But I had worked for Al Siniscal at A1 Audio and my office was upstairs. And every day I'd have to walk up the stairs and on both sides of the stairway, Al had these amplifiers stored. And so I said to the guy, well, I might know where some used ones are. Would you be interested? I'm desperate, I need 10 of them. So yada, 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 I call Al. I said, you still have those amplifiers on the stairs? He says, yeah. I says, what do you want for him? He says, I'll take 200 bucks a piece. I said, fine. I called the guy back up. I says, they're 800 bucks a piece. How many you need? He took 10. And from that moment on, I never looked back. <laughs> I never looked back. Now, the name Soundbroker. How did I come up with a brilliant name like Soundbroker? You're probably all asking yourself. How did you possibly come up with a name like that? That's just brilliant, it's unique, it's crazy, it's creative. So I'm sitting in my office, the JBL, and the phone rings, and I'm now doing independent contracting work for JBL, and the phone starts to ring, and I'm not sure how to answer it. Do I say, hello, JBL? Do I say, Cash Landy? Or do I say, you know, the phone number, 4321? So I answered the phone and I said, uh, hello? And the guy says, oh, I think I've got the wrong number. I'm looking for the sound broker. I said, you got me, you got me. Could, could you call me back in 10 minutes? And the guy says, sure. He hung up with me, I registered the name and that guy never called back. <laughs> and the rest is history. And then Ken Porter came into my life. And of all the people, there were two people in my, there were three people in my life at the time. Two of them are in this room right now that saw that I was onto something big. And that was Ken Porter, Tom Source, and um, I guess me. <laughs> Who? Who? David. Ken? Kenny? Mr. Dansky. Hello? David Dansky, who's the other one that saw that, yeah, that was it. You should follow that lead. Yeah, well, actually, David was a David was a good friend at the time, and I don't need. Wait, Dave, were you in? Were you in Los Angeles at the time, yeah. or were you up in Tahoe? No, LA. Yeah, anyway, but Tom Source and Ken Porter both thought I was onto something big, and they both gave me so much assistance in getting started. Along, of course, with Al Siniscal, but when most people were telling me, "What would I want to do with you?" You know, why would I want to sell new gear with your stuff? You're selling used. Who needs it? But, um, you know, 23 years later, I still have something going. And I also have a bunch of group, group of acquaintances and friends and, and business associates that I really appreciate everything you've done for me. And that's my story. So, uh, Ken, do you have any stories you want to share about me? You I talking to me or Ken Porter? Well, let me put it this way. That's enough about me talking about me. Why don't you talk about me for a little while? <laughs> I've always wanted to use that line. Tom? 
Uh, let me unmute. You're muted. You're unmuted. Oh, I am unmuted. Okay. Um, Jan is known for his unique personality. And uh, it's been fascinating to watch Jan mature over the year, years and develop a really keen business sense while keeping and maintaining his unique perspective of the world. And I think you've made a tremendous impact on connecting people and helping people along and establishing an avenue that's become uh, quite well known in the industry. And I applaud you for that. And I applaud your tenacity and your stick with itness. Um, it's a success story that I adore. Well, thank you very much. Tom, I, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, but you were the first person to say to me, hey, listen, if you need money, I want to invest in you. Tom was the first person that, that, that's, that, that came to me and offered me money. He says, if you need money, I would, I'll become a partner of yours. And so I really appreciate that. After all these years, I still remember that. I, there's certain things that I don't forget, you know? And I appreciate it. I'm proud that. of you, man. I'm very proud of you. And the, the, I remember when I first started, Ken Porter, I spoke to you and you just, of all the people, you know, you gave me more advice and gave me more direction than anyone else in my career. I mean, you, you, you became my mentor when I was first starting and I was so green behind the ears and I really didn't know what I was doing, but you really focused me in on it and you gave me some great tips and great ideas and you just, you just gave me the focus on how to make it happen. And I really appreciate that. Do you remember when, I, when we first met? Yeah, were you also in LA at the time and then you moved to Vegas later? Yes, I was, yeah, I was, in, I was in, yeah. Yep, remember that well? You done good. Yeah. Of course, the other one you gotta keep watching out though. Good Jewish boy living in the desert goes out and eats shrimp and then gets <laughs> sick. What death wish do you have, you know? <laughs> A long uh, way from the ocean. And it's not in your in, in your your Torah. <laughs> no, that's right. You know, shellfish is just one of those things that you're not supposed to eat in the desert. But you could eat it if it's refrigerated. I think in those days when they first came up with this, uh, with the with the food, uh, you know, if they were away from the water, and of course, living in Egypt and Israel, not too much, you know, not too much shrimping going on there in that desert. So the same thing with pork. You know, if you don't eat it right away, it's it's deadly. But uh, yeah, you could definitely get you could definitely get uh, you know seafood poisoning. So, does anybody else have anything they want to share right now? Should I uh, should I share your quote, uh, Jan? If you if you feel it's worthwhile, of course. Come on, you know this is a quote. I I, I wrote this down. It's dated here. It says it's just a, like a post-it note that I have, and I, for some reason I've been holding on to it. Now, was this before or after Soundbroker, nineteen ninety seven? Uh, it was just as we were starting Soundbroker. So when I started Soundbroker, just an FYI, Paul was working, um, Paul Kenny was working, I, I think, for Paul Anka at the time. Mm, no. No, at that no, point. But you were the one who told me what Paul Anka said. Okay. Because I wanted to make myself sound like I'd been in the business a little bit longer. Oh, right. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Because you, because <laughs> in the so 90s and then you did the in, the th in the thousands. And then yeah. in the tens, yeah. So you had been working for decades, like the nineties <laughs> and the thousands, you know, of yours too, you know, because Paul Anka used to say, 
oh, I've been in the I've been in the business for four decades, and that was the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, and the eighties. And it was like four decades. And wait a second, he's not forty years; it's only thirty years. But he likes to exaggerate. So, Jen was able to cash in on that same thing since he started his company close to the end of a decade. Anyway, but Jen gave me this great quote that I wrote down for some reason on, uh, oh, listen to this. It's almost the uh, anniversary of it. It's just four days ago was the anniversary, uh, November 14th, 1997. Jan said, and here it is, I wrote it down, right? Jan said, and I quote, money is a fucking great tool, man. There you go. Have you ever heard a wiser quote? That is wise, right? So, you know, remember that as you're yeah. you know, trying to find more of it. That was the date when I was just incorporating. That was exactly the date that I was getting ready to do all this incorporation. How about that, huh? I don't know, for some reason, the funny thing is that I wrote it down and that I've kept this piece of paper since then. That is weird. Well, it's, it, I think that could, be, that could be my epitaph on my gravestone, you know? <laughs> all right. All things considered, I'd rather, be, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. You know, that's what they say. So the other thing, the other thing now, one of the one of the one of the highlights that we do now on the show is we talk about we talk about our most memorable experience of of what this industry has done for us. And I have a million stories. Uh, I mean, there's so many stories that I have, but the one that stands out the most in my mind is I was working for thanks to David Dansky, I was working as the production manager for Debbie Reynolds for her Thalian Ball. And what that was is Debbie Reynolds and Ruta Lee had a charity uh, that they would donate money to a wing of Cedar sinai Hospital in Los Angeles where they would give free healthcare to aging actors that couldn't afford healthcare. A very beneficial charity. And children, the children too. Children too. And, and basically every, every it, was, it was a show, I think it was every two years and they had a featured guest on the show. One year I got to meet Lucille Ball. One year I got to meet Eliz um, Angela Lansbury. Yeah. I got to hang out with 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 Donald O'Connor. We used to go out for lunch. The guy was so cool, you know. Robert Blake tried to kill me, um, yeah. you know. They were honorees. They were honor every year that every year they would honor a different famous celebrity. That's right. And one year, one year, Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Wonderful is what they were called, uh, was Jimmy Stewart. And I had just really, it was about six o'clock at night. The show didn't start till eight. And I had just released the crew and I was getting ready to change, eat some dinner and change into my tuxedo. When I get a call from the kitchen saying, uh, there's some guy, there's some guy back here on the, on the loading dock is asking for you wasn't expecting anybody. And I go out to the loading dock and there bigger than life is Jimmy Stewart. Just standing there on a loading dock. And I said, Mr. Stewart, what are you doing here? Uh, the car's not supposed to pick you up for another two hours. And, you know, I wish I could do Jimmy Stewart right now. He says, yeah, you know, I was sitting at home. I was doing nothing. And I felt, you know, I only, I only live a few blocks away from here. So I would drive over here. I said, well, that's great. And he stops me. He says, you think we can go somewhere else other than stand on the loading dock? <laughs> so I took him to his dressing room and I'm saying, if there's anything you need, just call me, you know, this is the, you know, and he says, do you have to go? And I said, no, I, I don't have to go. He says, sit, let's talk. 
And we started talking and it was like, this guy had no idea what kind of mega star he was. Just had, it was, it was like talking to someone who had no idea how famous he was. And after he's talking, we're talking about life and we're talking about all these things. And then I said, you know, I gotta tell you, you know, you are in my favorite movie of all times. And without missing a beat, he says, oh, Harvey? <laughs> and, I, and of course, he, he threw me off and I said, no, no, it's a wonderful life. He says, oh, I knew you were saying that. He says, and then he told me an interesting story that he was not supposed to do that movie. He turned it down three different times. And the, the, the original person that they had cast, does anybody know who the who, who original person they wanted to cast for this movie? Humphrey Bogart. They wanted to cast Humphrey Bogart, but he was doing that movie where he was on the, uh, the Desert Queen on the, on the boat in, the, in Africa, African the African Queen, and he had a stroke and he couldn't make it. He couldn't do it. And then they, they, I forgot the second guy that they wanted and he turned it down because he had heard that working with, uh, with uh, Donna. Um, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, what was that? Catherine Hepburn. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, Donna Reed. Donna Reed. He heard oh. that working with Donna Reed was a nightmare and he didn't want to do it. He said, but he says, of course, that that movie changed his whole life. And that is like one of my top stories. And it also makes me realize in that one moment in time on the bridge, and not everybody has seen this movie, when he's on that bridge and he's thinking of throwing his life away, where he had no idea how many people's lives he had affected. I think about that movie and that scene all the time now as when I realize what we're going through in our industry and every one of us, every one of us affects someone else's life in a major way. So your life is very important and we don't know how we're affecting other people, but we know that if we, if we have a positive attitude and we're making the best of a bad situation, that's going, that's going to make a difference in other people's lives. And that's why I do the mastermind group. And that's, that's, that, that, that's it in a nutshell. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm not doing it for the fame. Uh, that's for sure. Cause there is no fame here or money. I'm doing it because I, if I can just reach one other person and get someone else to do something good for somebody else, then I've done, I've done what I set out to do in these tough times. If I could bring a little laughter into your lives, uh, uh, you know, from the show, um, hey, that, that, that's, that's what it's all about. And I'm glad that I'm able to do it. And I'm glad that you guys are sharing it with me. So hey, now. that's my story. Anybody uh, have anything we want to share? I want to add something about that movie. It's a Wonderful Life. Sure. It was not a hit. And it was not a hit movie. And so it was allowed to go into public domain. And because it was in public domain, the networks and the TV stations all started showing it because it was free. And that's what made the movie really famous. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And the other thing about that is I read that Jimmy Stewart, right after he, right before he made that movie, he actually was over in uh, fought in one of the world, uh, I think it was World War II, and he actually had PTSD. And they said in some of those scenes where it looks like he was, you know, having like a flashback or whatever, they said that was actually legit. That he actually was wasn't even acting. That was really him, but they kept it in the movie. Yeah. 
Also, the other thing that Jimmy Stewart told me, because I asked him, I said, man, you were a megastar in those days. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. But I didn't look at myself as a megastar. I said, so what was, I, I said to him, what was it like being a star? What was it like with the women, you know, with, with, with women all over you? And he says, oh, I was a happily married man. And then he said to me, I think I need to rest now. <laughs> and that was my cue to leave. So that was, uh, you know, that was, that was, that was, um, that was um, a moment in time. I got another moment in time that I would like to share with you. And this was back in, back in 1970, I believe. And this was before I was in the business. Um, I went to Watkins Glen. I think it was in 70, Watkins Glen. It was the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and the band. And they were playing in upstate New York at a racetrack at Watkins Glen. It was really, really hot that day, super hot. And I had just gotten out of the military. I was uh, trained as a medic. And I, a guy started to OD right in front of me. And this is a miracle story because today it never would have happened. But I organized the people around us. We got him out of the crowd. We, I, I gave him some CPR. I got him breathing again. And then somehow we got on a medevac head, helicopter and I was on the helicopter. I don't know what happened there, but I ended up going on the helicopter and then they brought me backstage because Bill Graham wanted to meet me. And Bill Graham said, thank you very much for saving that guy's life. And basically, I want you backstage. And I got to see backstage for my first concert at Watkins Glen. And I thought it was just amazing. But there was one thing that stood out other than that. Is, remember I said it was really hot? Well, they had the fencing all around the backstage. And people were really hot. And Bill Graham took out a hose. And he sprayed down the crowd. So we, And I thought that was just really an amazing moment in time where he actually cared about the people other than just himself. And he, he was trying to keep them cool during the period of time. So that was also, I'll tell you another story about Bill Graham that I, that I have. Um, I went to see when, when I was, when I was younger, um, I was living up in Santa Barbara. This is a little bit, this is uh, back, uh, back in the early, very early seventies as well. So Bill, so this had to be maybe a little bit later. And we went to Winterland to see, the Grateful Dead. And some guy had gotten up on the lighting truss and was dancing above the band. And Bill Graham stopped the show and talked to this guy, calmed him down while they lowered the lighting truss and saved this guy's life as well. So that's my two stories with Bill Graham. And, and it was pretty amazing that he actually stopped the show to get this guy off the lighting truss. And rather than say it, you know, I guess it would have been a, a, a different ending if the guy would have fallen off, you know? <laughs> but um, so anyway, that's my stories. I got many more where they come from. Anybody have they, anything they want to share? Can nope. you guys No hear applause, me? please. Save for the end. Yes. Right, David? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, so the Grateful Dead. So we were talking about Jeffrey James. First of all, I got introduced to Jeffrey James by Jimmy Fielder. And he was friends with the dead because he got us backstage in San Diego to see the show. And the cops in San Diego were still pretty much uh, conservative. And they started screwing around to the people backstage. And I, the, one of the drummers got arrested for fighting with the cops or, or resisting arrest. 
And we all went to the jail to help get him out. But that's my Grateful Dead story. One of my many Grateful Dead stories. <laughs> I also saw them with the Allman Brothers at RFK Stadium with the wall of sound. And I got to say that wall of sound because it had no compression drivers at all. It was all paper. Felt like distilled water. The sound was just kind of flowing past you. It was very esoteric, <laughs> but it wasn't in your face harsh at all. Well, and those that was Jeff Cook's design. And of course, that was one of the first people I met in California where he used all these neodymium four inch drivers. Yeah, that, and, was, and these, that was the vocal cluster. Yeah, that was, and that was Jeff Cook's design, uh, Soundstorm. So that was a long time ago in a land far away. And I got to, I got to, I got to work. That was that was how I ended up mixing the Doopy Brothers for the first time before I knew what I was doing. I, I just it was just because in those days I was I was in Santa Barbara. It was it was like uh, late '69, early '70, and I went. He he. I met him at a, a concert in the park, and. We got we started talking and he says, what are you doing tomorrow? You have a car? I said, yeah, he says, I need some help getting down to the Ventura Theater. And we were in Santa Barbara and I drove down to the I drove down to the Santa to Santa Barbara from the Ventura. And uh, I had a, a Volkswagen Squareback. So they loaded this. They loaded the gear into the into the uh, the Volkswagen. We got down there and the guy that was going to mix the show didn't show up. And he says, hey, you want to mix the show <laughs> for the Doobie Brothers? I says, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> And that was the first show I ever mixed. Probably the last, I think. Actually, I mixed one more show after that, but uh, that was it. That was my story. I got so close to mixing them and never did. And there you are. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and everybody was saying it sounded good, but I didn't know what I was doing. I was just all I was doing was controlling the the, the levels. They were they were mixing everything back backstage. They were they were doing all the EQing backstage. So in those days, you know, that was the, that's yeah. the story. Speaking of the Doobie Brothers, uh, I think it was about five, six years ago, we actually had Michael McDonald up in our area doing a private concert. And uh, it was at a high school theater and he came in, you know, the whole band came in and, you know, he's in his dressing room playing his piano, comes on stage, plays his piano. He gets done and goes, I think I'm going to walk around the city. And he just started walking, it's a little village, and he started walking around and talking to people and people had no clue who he was. And then he gets done and like, yeah. Anybody can come backstage after their show. And so, I mean, Michael McDonald's probably one of my funnest shows I've ever worked. He was just so laid back, didn't, didn't care about anything. His, I mean, his piano, something happened with the piano halfway through the show, and he just he just kept going. He goes, ah, technology, we can live without it one of these days. <laughs> cool. Very, very cool. Too bad so, more performers aren't like that, huh, Josh? Oh, I know. You can work with some of them like that, and then I've worked with others where, you know, they're just total, you know, jerks. They just think, you know, that they know everything, you know, and you don't know shit, you know, it's just like, you know. That's a good story. Thanks for that, Josh. Yes. Yep. Anybody else want to share anything? Any, anybody else want to share a story that they have or anything like that? Can you guys, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Who's that? Speak, what's your name? Uh, this, is, this is Rod Bauer. I'm the guy with standing in front of the mixing board. Come on. I'm on my phone. Oh, there you are. Hi, Rob. Oh, okay. oh, there you go. Hi, oh, there you go. Okay. Hi. Yeah. Now it explains everything. I thought it was somebody was sharing yeah. the screen. No, I joined in a, a couple minutes late, and then I'm I, doing a little construction. Thank God I have that to fall back on. I mean, I started in construction, then got into sound and wanted to get out of construction, but now at least I have it to fall back on. But I I work at a venue that's got some pretty cool nationals, and and my story was had to do with Johnny Winters. Uh, it was about 
he, we were doing the show and we don't, the stage is up about five and a half feet and we let the crowd come right up front. We don't do this whole thing with their way back. So Johnny goes and he plays two encores and he gets up and the crew's running on stage. They're unplugging amps. The drummer starts walking off. Johnny walks back and grabs another guitar and goes and sits down. And the whole crew's like freaking out. They're like running back, plugging in. The guitar player's like, I've been with them 30 years. I've never seen him play more than two encores. So he sits back down and he sits right on the edge of the stage. You could reach out and touch his guitar if you wanted to. But so after the show, me and the owner, because I was the production manager, and uh, we go in and he always has his camper right next to the stage. And so all the fans can line up, go in, sit down at his table, and he'll sign anything, talk to you. And so it was all over. And we walked in. We're like, man, we want to thank you for an amazing show. And he goes, no, I want to thank you. He goes, I haven't been able to have the crowd up front like that since the 80s. Like, they, he goes, just to be able to connect with my crowd and the people like that, it was the coolest thing. He, he just really loved it. Well, he ended up dying about eight months later. So we were so glad that we actually got to have him at our venue. But he was a really cool guy. Well, I, I hope that it had nothing to do with him playing in your event, you know, your venue. No. <laughs> <laughs> that, no but that's it's, good to it's, hear. It's, good to hear. You know, it goes both you ways. Know, the we, audience, you know, audience appreciates the artist and the artist appreciates the audience, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So, Chris, yeah, we've had about Chris, Bill you got a story for us? I got a short story about Bill Graham. Uh, we opened Mountain View uh, Amphitheater. I think it was 1986. And Julio was the first act in there. And I go in in the morning and one of our buses had broke down from whatever city we were coming from the previous day. So the sound crew is there, the riggers are not there. So I'm trying to direct rigging and whatever I can to get the lighting out of my way. Bill Graham is there himself washing down the seats in the amphitheater to get the concrete dust off of them. Super nice guy giving us whatever we need to get the job done because he understood what we were, you know, what we were up against. Uh, after the show, he's like, please tell me what we can do to make this venue better. We're, you know, and I made a couple suggestions about putting some delay speakers and that kind of thing. Anyway, it was just a super nice guy. And I had the pleasure to meet him that day. And unfortunately, that was the only time, but yeah, great guy. Yeah, Bill Graham is an amazing guy. I've, I actually met him two other times in my life. Um, once with Chris Isaac when I was doing when I was on the road with Chris Isaac um, with A1 Audio, um, which was really cool. Uh, actually, uh, I think I also met him with Harry Connick. So that was, a, I met him, uh, I guess, the third time. And then, of course, when I was working for World Stage and we were doing this, uh, this was back in the, in, in the, uh, the uh, late 70s, um, 1977, I believe, I met him and uh, we were doing these two-way broadcasts and I wanted him to put them into his venue, but he was adamantly against it because he kept, he kept saying to me, why would we put screens in to, so we could broadcast performers? The audience wants to feel them sweat. And I couldn't convince him otherwise, but today, of course, everybody's doing it. We're doing it right now here, but, uh, but the, the reality well, we is have no other alternative in this case, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Absolutely. Well, How I think that 
I think there's nobody else that wants to share anything. I just, uh, you know, about their careers or a show that they did. Is there anybody that has a show outstanding in their life that they would like to share with the world? You know, uh, Chris Musgrave, I'm sure you have a few that you would like to talk about. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not used to seeing you and not hearing you, you know? I don't know that mine are um, uh, PG enough, some of the ones that stand out the <laughs> I mean, I can, uh, I can give you some on, you guys were talking about the brothers, I can give you some Dickie Betts stories all day long, but again, I, I don't know that I could scale it back enough. Uh, <laughs> Betts. So the rest are, well, I'll tell you what, I went out on the Guns N' Roses tour, um, sitting there in a dressing room and Axel, uh, there was a joint being passed around to several people and Axel was having an issue and he had just released the front of house guy. I won't mention who that was because there's been many, um, and Axel comes and sits next to me and says, do you know any front of house guys? And I said, well, actually that would have been the first guy on my list to call. Axel gets up, hands me the joint, walks away, turns around, takes two steps back, takes the joint away, turns around, walks away. <laughs> I guess he didn't like your answer, huh, Chris? Well, you know, look, Zimmerman, Rob said something earlier about some artists are jerks or some aren't. And, you know, a lot of my younger staff, when I remind them what, uh, first off, is a lot of artists react that way because at the start of their career, it was beat into their head that they didn't know what they were talking about. They don't know the business that everybody else has the best interest for them and blah, 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 blah. Number two is you have to be a certain amount of fucked up to be a rock star. Okay. If this was easy, everybody would do it. Okay. Period. End of story. So you've got to be a little bit of fucked up and nine more than nine times out of 10, 9.5, you got fucked over for the first X amount of your career by everybody telling you that they knew what the fuck they were talking about. So I agree a thousand I would, percent. Yeah, I, Rob, I would react a little differently than you and I advise everybody younger of those two points of like, you know what? And you might be shocked sometimes to find out, you know, I, one of the albums I did with Dickie, as a matter of fact, at my studio, I was shocked, absolutely floored by how much he absorbed of his time with the great Tommy Dowd and how much Dickie brought with him to the studio that he learned from Tommy Dowd and how good of an ear that man has from all those years of standing in front of not only the wall of sound, but his own amp. I mean, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world is a monitor engineer for Dickie Betts because first off, his, his stack is loud no, we're losing him. We're losing him. Oh, Chris, uh, turn your video off. Get over the stack, and of course, you got a point between that. So, yeah, well, Chris, you just explained why James Brown was such a dick to me. Then <laughs> that's all I can say, because that was that. You know, I, one of the things I wanted to cover was my best show and my worst show, and the worst show I ever had. Worst well, experience James was, had to deal with racism and the rest of it. So. Yeah, we can't hear you. You're breaking up. I don't know, Chris. Your connection is is dying. You were yeah. good for a while, but now. But you're, I, I you're, will tell you're you, one choppy. of the worst shows I ever had was with uh, was with, it, it wasn't that it was a bad show. It was just a bad experience working with James Brown. <laughs> I've heard some criminal. stories about working with uh, working with certain performers, uh, James Brown, Ray Charles. You know, depending on who you are and how you handle the situation, they can react pretty uh, badly to you. Yeah. Well. Uh, I remember. Oh, I re- the people 
We're losing you, Chris. We can't hear you, unfortunately. Oh, and he you. dropped out, I think. Yeah. Oh well. That's bad connection. That's one of the thing. One of the things that's really important to do when you're doing when you're doing Zoom meetings is that to try to be plugged into the internet rather than to use Wi-Fi. But uh, that's always that's always a good sign. Anyway, oh, I, I have a quick story for you, Jan. Sure. Um, so this is a, a, there was a period of time where I did a lot of big band work and I had just come off doing about a year with the Duke Ellington's big band, uh, had, was on the road with them and was really proud of my work with them. And I was asked to do the AFI award show that had Count Basie. And I thought, I am so set up for this gig. I'm like just coming off the road with Ellington. I'm in the groove. I know all of Basie's stuff. So we do the show, it goes great. I feel really good about the mix. And I go back to say uh, goodnight to Count Basie. And, and you know, and I, I'm all beaming with proud and really pleased with my work. And he goes, hey, you the sound man? I said, yeah, I, I'm Tom. I was the guy who mixed the show. He goes, you know, you know, I've worked with a lot of sound men and you're one of them. <laughs> oh tom i have such a similar story dude i was so set up for the moment and there it was <laughs> oh can i can i share my doc severinson moment then hit it brother it's, it's, oh, so take that same exact story you know i was doing some doc severinson shows when i worked at the sands in atlantic city and yeah. he carried a guy but his guy did the monitors and i did the house or something I wanted to get my picture taken with Doc Severinsen backstage, like I did with many of the performers that worked in our venue. So I did that, and I then I took the picture back there to have him uh, sign it, kind of like in Tom's story. I, I went back to see Doc, and he goes, "You are you're the sound guy. Wow, you are." And I was like waiting for him to say, you know, the best sound or the best something. He goes, "You are the best dressed sound guy I've ever worked with." <laughs> It's like, I was like, okay, I'll take that as a compliment from Doc Severinsen, who was known for his, uh, you know, great dressing also. But I thought that was so funny. You know? <laughs> he was really cool. So, so, Dan, I'm not sure if there's a running theme here, but I do actually have a funny live concert story. Go ahead, Michael. Yay. So, so this was back when I was willing to work nights and weekends, and I was in the nightclub business. And I worked for an outfit called the Baja Beach Company. And we had, at one point, 30-some nightclubs across the U.S. And we came up with uh, one summer, summer of 90-something. I don't know what it was. We came up with this summer concert series. And we were signing these, these B acts to hit multiple of our clubs throughout the summer, especially the ones that had big parking lots. And we would do parking lot concerts. And one of the artists we signed that summer was Edgar Winter. And this is when I was in Texas, so working in Arlington, Texas, Edgar Winter, you know, we're excited, you know, classic, classic rock, legendary. Uh, I don't think he was in the Hall of Fame at the time, but certainly, you know, Hall of Fame caliber, perhaps. And uh, we did our normal, normal stage. His rider was very friendly, no big deal. Um, we did our normal stage, normal gear, set up in the parking lot, you know, beer tub girls, the whole deal. And... Uh, um, he never did a sound check, which we thought was interesting. He had he sent his band out for sound check, but he never came out for sound check. He just stayed in the motorhome that we had that was the green room basically right behind the stage. 
So uh, showtime comes around and this being summer in Vegas, it's still a little bit light and he sends word out that he doesn't want to come out until it's dark. He doesn't like being in the sunlight. And we think, oh, sure, you know, he's very light complected, you know, that's, that's probably an issue. So sun goes down, he, we get the word, he's coming out, show starts, he's playing and I'm at front of house with the sound guy and I look at the sound guy and I go, hey, his hair is kind of blonder than I thought. I thought his hair was like, you know, white, white. And he's like, oh, you know, it, it changes. Oh, okay. We get a few songs into it and I'm like, interesting he doesn't he doesn't he sounds different on the albums and he's like well you know that's all production work of course he sounds different so we get we're a good hour into it and he still hasn't taken his sunglasses off and mind you by now it's nighttime it's full-on night and i'm like does he ever take his sunglasses off no no never never that's just one of his trademarks oh, okay so show's over good show crowd loves it it's a strong night i think it was a saturday um, and he decides, he goes back to the RV, but then later we get the word he wants to come in. We had a, we had a separate part of the club that had pool tables and foosball and served bar food. And he wants to come in and play pool and have some food. Sure. Come on in. So he comes in, he's playing pool, very friendly. People go up, you know, autographs, all that, you know, everybody's very cool. It's going great. Um, and he starts drinking and he keeps drinking. And he keeps drinking. And next thing we know, it's about 2.30 in the morning. Last call has come and gone. And he's still out there knocking down the last, you know, six rounds that he ordered at 10 minutes before last call. And then all of a sudden, he passes out on the pool table. <laughs> Just leans over to take a shot and he's out. And his guys that are with him, I, I don't, not banned. Not, not actual band members, but like, you know, roadie slash security slash valet, just kind of roll him over. And they're like, ah, he'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Let's, let's let the crowd, you know, the club is closed now and it's slowly emptying. And they're like, just let the crowd go and then we'll move him out to the RV and then get him back to the hotel. And um, sure enough, crowd leaves. They go to pick him up. He sort of wakes up. He's pissed all over himself at this point. So his jeans are soaked. And as he's kind of, he's kind of fighting his people, you know, as they're trying to carry him out and he knocks his shades off that have been on this whole time. And it's not Edgar, Johnny. <laughs> and so it was Johnny Winter. And apparently, so, so, so we're like, we're looking and we're like, hey, that's Johnny Winter. And as he says, you know, he kind of looks up and he goes, that's right. And don't you forget it. <laughs> and at that point, crowd is gone, concert's over. So we just kind of laugh about it. But we had to put the word out to all the clubs that were down calendar. Like, hey, you need to see who shows up in the light of day when the RV shows up and make sure it's Edgar because we're paying for Edgar. And sure enough, like five or six clubs further on in the summer, Johnny, they tried it again with Johnny. And apparently this was like a normal thing they did. Like whenever one didn't want to play, the other one would just go. Well, that's funny. OMG. That, you should write that down somewhere, Mike, and distribute that. That's a great story. It was, it was I mean, like I said, we, we still made the money. Nobody knew, I don't think, other than us. So 
but but yeah, I mean, they had different they had different hit songs, right? Like, tell me, refresh my memory. What Ed, what what hit songs Edgar Winter? Oh, even Edgar had? was of course Frankenstein. Yeah, yeah. And Johnny, so did, Johnny was always more bluesy. Yeah, right. Was so deep, did right. But, yeah, but he didn't so, miss a beat. He didn't miss a lick. I mean, so he did the Edgar songs. Yeah, yeah. He just did Edgar. That's, oh my God, that's so crazy. But wasn't Edgar keyboards? Uh, that's I thought what I thought. Guitar and keyboards. Oh, okay. Keyboard anyway, that's a crazy story that that they would do that. That's hilarious. How's my audience? my Johnny? My Johnny uh, Winter show. Edgar Winter was at that. They they were together. Johnny Winters and Edgar Winter were on my stage at the same time. We had six blues bands. So yeah. that show I told you about Johnny Winters was the same show. And when you see them together, you're like, oh, they don't look that much alike. They but, don't. They don't. But, you know, you throw big oh, that's so shades fun. on, and at night, eh, you know, a couple of cocktails. Eh, what do you care? I mean, so did Johnny Winters is definitely albino. He's extremely. His eyes are albino. He's he's totally albino. Yeah, he's white. He's white, white. So, Mike, yeah. at yeah. the at the Edgar Winter show that you did. Did he talk to the audience between songs at all? You know, that kind yeah, of stuff? you know, like, hey, here's a song, you know, from blah, 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 from this album, or, hey, hope you like that one. Here's another big hit. You know, that the, the kind of real generic stuff. Nothing. Amazing. That is so cool. Hey, Ken, how's my audio? I hear you. Who's that? It's Chris. So he brought hey, up sunglasses. I've got a funny one for you. I got called once to help a bunch of kids out band called White Star, Lou Adler's son, Roy Orbison's kid, Dickie Betts's kid, um, you know, and on and on. So anyways, uh, we're on the bus and everybody's telling their stories and a story of Roy comes up from Orby uh, and Orby talks about how they went to go see Star Wars with dad. And they're sitting there and they watch the whole movie through and it finishes and Roy apparently goes, I don't know, I don't think the special effects were that good. And of course the kids turn to him and say, dad, your sunglasses are still on. Roy reaches in his coat pocket, pulls out a hundred bucks, says, tell him to roll it again. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. We all have some good stories. That, that's what I like about this business is that we all have good stories. Ken, you're smiling. You got a story you want to share? Me? Ken Porter. Oh, I was just laughing at Chris. Chris, did you uh, travel with uh, Troy Venable back in the days with Dickie? I do know Troy. Um, yeah, I spent a, I did a sentence with Dickie. We like, there was one time actually, uh, Dickie had gotten on the bus. It was a morning. I was pretty hungover. And as he got on the bus, they said, hi, my name's Chris. And I work for Dickie Betts. And everybody in the front lounge said, hi, Chris. And Dickie walked past saying, I don't get it. So, you know, that kind of, uh, set the tone for how that tour kind of went. Um, you know, I don't mind throwing myself under the bus. Here's, here's another one on that same one with Troy. I think Troy was there. Um, some magical mushrooms may have been taken by myself in a one Mike Koch. And uh, we were uh, we were dancing with the gods, as Dickie likes to say. And Dickie walks out to the front lounge, butt naked next to the uh, the couch there. Mike Koch looks at him and looks at me and says, is that real? <laughs> well, oh, kids say the darndest things, huh, Chris? You know, with all that tour, you know, I find it interesting that that uh, Troy was so bad that he got fired from the tour because of his abuses. I don't know that that you know I'm not going to get into it. That's Troy's business. But let's just say it wasn't all that, and it may have not all been about Troy. I think there were good portions of those tours that were really unhealthy um, for all <laughs> of us. 
and sometimes decisions were made without maybe all the facts or everything, you know, being, you know, this there or one other, you know, it was, uh, I'll tell you what, it, it shortened my life. It expanded my mind a lot. <laughs> my first heart attack was on a golf course with Dickie Betts. Um, <laughs> my second heart attack, I worked for Dickie Betts. Um, matter of fact, while I was in the hospital, my first heart attack, which was massive, they had to move me down the end of a Sarasota Memorial hallway um, in the hospital because I was getting too many people. And I remember coming to at one point from the morphine drip and just hearing, I am fucking family. And it's like, all right, well, Dickie's here. <laughs> you know, Dickie coming in, screaming at me. It started, we were, we were on the golf course. And uh, I'd hit a ball and surprisingly, one of the few times he ever mentioned bitch trucks, I mean, butch trucks, um, was that uh, he uh, said, shit, I'd give that to Butch, you know, and it kind of floored me for a second. And he kept telling me all morning, he's like, man, you don't look good, brother. You don't look good. I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And time to leave. I was going to go back to the studio. We were working on, um, yeah, I forget if it was the 30th anniversary of Ramblin' Man with Vassar or the acoustic album we're doing. Either way, I was going to go back and listen to some mixes. And he said, no, let me drive you. You don't look good. I said, no, fuck you. I'm fine. I thought he's trying to fuck with my golf game all day because I suck and he's a scratch player. But I walked back into the studio, walked in the control room, asked for something to get set up, turned around and I collapsed. Right. So that, that was the that was the first one. Um, the second one, I was still working with him. So for a while there, I thought, well, shit, you know, the problem here is Dickie. It's not me. It's Dickie. It's got to be Dickie. Right. Which actually Dickie's like, you know, that guy, it, it's amazing the health he's in. It's amazing. You know, he's one of the best conversationalists. I, I've had the luck to work with some people that are pretty interesting, that are very well read, you know, whether it be a, a, a Jello Biafra who people don't understand is insanely intelligent and fun to talk to, uh, you know, or Killing Joke or any of these bands that all shorten my life. I blame them all. None of it was me. I blame all the artists, of course, you know, but uh, you know, there, there was a lot of that time with Dickie and Troy, hey, Troy's a character. I mean, I'll leave it at that. So, you know, like, <laughs> Well, that's that's why we do this. What we do. There's so many great experiences, you know. And hey, I'd like to make hey, this uh, a feature. Quick question, Chris. Do you know Bert Holman? <laughs> yeah. How do I know Bert Holman? I mean, I he's the manager guy. of the Almond Brothers. Has been for a very long time. Let, let Let's be clear about this. Um, I have no love for the memory or anything that was Butch Trucks. Okay. Uh, and I believe that he was the catalyst to a good portion of the problems. The, I mean, the first breakup of the brothers was pretty well known. Uh, Greg turned Stace evidence against his tech for getting him blow. The tech went to prison. Everybody else said, you're a rat. I'll never take the stage with you. That's pretty well known. As the years went by, everybody realized Greg didn't have a choice or they were going to, because the federal government was putting, you know, screws on him, so to speak. Uh, Bert stayed with them all the way along, but there were some things that were done, like removing Red Dog, who I love spending time with Red Dog at my house or anywhere else and being unceremoniously let go after 30 years for some bullshit swag. You know, a lot of this was Butch, who I don't know if you guys know at the end of the day, his way out was while all his family was at his house and his wife walked in his bedroom, he blew his head off in front of her with a mortgage and debt. So, you know, Bert, I've got nothing sad. bad to say about Bert or good to say about Bert because I didn't work with Bert. I worked with Dickie. So. Oh, okay. Well, well I just we all I have thought you might stories. know. 
Yeah, we so, all have some so great Bert- stories and we all have some bad stories. And, uh, you know, I want to do a show with the best and worst experiences. So, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, save up your experiences for that for, for that opportunity and then we'll we'll come back. Um, one thing I would like to say before we before we all adjoin and uh, is that one of the things that I want to introduce into the mastermind group was worth my time segment. This is worth my time. And so to start it all off, I want to say that I have found something that was worth my time. And that is on Netflix. And it's called Alias. And it's an old show from 2001, starring Jennifer Garner, when she was in her prime with Ron Rifkin. And it's a spy. It's a spy kind of humorous spy story with a lot of action. And it's on Netflix right now. And they, I never I never saw it before. And they, they've done six seasons. So I want to share that with you uh, on Netflix. Also, another show, which I believe is on, I think it's either on Amazon Prime or, um, or Netflix. I get confused. And it's called The Queen's Gambit. It's about a chess, uh, this guy, it's about a chess player. It's a fictitious That's story Netflix. about a chess master. And it's totally captivating, and it's definitely worth your time. And the last one I will share right now is on, uh, it is on Amazon, and it's called The Messiah. And they were going to do multiple seasons, but because of the subject matter about the Messiah, either coming back for the first time or coming back, depending on what your, your, your point of view is, uh, too many people and too many places uh, had some disagreements with the way they were presenting the Messiah aspect of it. And of course they were traveling all over the world with many, it, 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 it took many, many people to do this. So there was many scenes with many crowds, but if you can watch the Messiah, I think you'll enjoy it as well. So those are three things that are worth my time. Does anybody have anything that they wanna share that's worth their time other than that's outside of our industry? Kenny. Well, uh, you know, speaking of Netflix, I watched this show a couple times. I watched a couple episodes of it called Song Exploder. Have you seen it? Anyway, they they kind of they take a, a hit song by this group, and then the group talks about the background of it, and they, and you really get into it, like uh, for the roots of the song and why it happened and what's what it's all about, and they uh, they really dissect the song a lot more than you would expect. It's really fun to to hear the our actual songwriter talking about the song because that you know that's a lot of a lot of what we do is songs and you often wonder what how do they come up with those words and why this and why that but this uh song i mean this show it does some of the explaining for those artists it's pretty cool uh, David Dansky, there is a show, and I, I know you and I would have talked about it because you met the guy's son about the studio, the studio players in Los Angeles. Oh yeah, the the, the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking yeah. Crew. That's it. The Wrecking yeah, Crew. Yeah, that's a great film. Yeah, when that film first came out, they didn't have enough money to pay for the royalties on the amazing litany of songs, so they were doing charity events you pay what you could and he would and danny the son of or david go backwards a little bit and tell people what the wrecking crew is about okay in los angeles when the music business was really in los angeles in the 70s the 60s the 70s the 80s that the studio musicians the small group of studio musicians turned out to be on pretty much every record you ever heard that even if it was a Beach Boys record, they played on it, not the Beach Boys. 
and they played on everything. And these guys, including Glenn Campbell, were famous for booking six and seven sessions a day and moving from one studio to the next. And if you pick a song, hundreds and hundreds of songs, Hal Blaine, who just passed away, the drummer was on like every song. And so the guitar player, Danny Tedesco, I think it was Danny, his son decided to make a movie while his father was still alive about the Wrecking Crew. It's a documentary and all of these songs, so many songs that we all know he had to get the royalties for and he couldn't afford it. It was a fortune. So he would show the movie and that's how I got to meet him because he would show the movie trying to raise money. And I, I went to see it three different times because it's just amazing. The history of the music business is right there with the Wrecking Crew. Now Memphis had a group of guys and Nashville had a group of guys and Detroit had a group of guys. There's something the Funk Brothers were the guys in Detroit, but LA had the vast majority of all the music that was coming out. And so it's called The Wrecking Crew and it's fascinating. Yeah, it basically to just embellish on that, basically what, what the, the, you know, they, 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 like for example, the monkeys, that they, were, they played the monkeys because they wouldn't let the monkeys go into the studio. And a lot of times the bands would go in and then the producers didn't like what the band sounded like. And then the wrecking crew would go in and cut the tracks and they would remove the original tracks that the band did and put it out as a record. And the last thing I'd say about the wrecking crew is how Blaine the drummer, I believe one year he won six or seven Grammys from all the records he was on. <laughs> so you know who had a had a part in that movie whose name I saw in the credits, uh, and I think you probably all know this guy, Greg McVie. You know Greg McVie, right? So he his name is in the credits of that movie, and I'm not sure for what. But I, I, I keep forgetting to ask him what his part was in the movie. But he did something to make that movie happen. Hey, if you guys haven't seen it yet, one of the most amazing documentaries that's not only about the music industry and history of it, but our industry heavily intertwined as well, is The Language of Music, Tom Dowd story. And it starts with the introduction of multi-channels and him building those and showing Ray Charles how he played back tracks that Ray Charles didn't know you could do yet. And Ray Charles in the movie, when you see him fire the girls and get them out of there and say he'll do the parts himself. Well, the truth about that is he just learned that Tommy was able to do multi-track. So his head was so fast. Ray was so fast. He goes, I'll do those parts myself. But this starts back with, I don't know how much you know about Tommy, but Tommy started, and they discuss it, in a little office in Manhattan on a little something called the Manhattan Project. And he was one of the lead guys of the Manhattan Project. And when he got done with all those tests down in the Canary Islands, came back, he knew that what they were teaching in college was bullshit, but he couldn't say anything because it was classified. And all of a sudden, he became a record producer instead. And his first job was, the first song is, if I knew you are coming, I would have baked a cake. And it starts there and goes all the way up through Skinner, the Allman Brothers, Ray Charles, Anita Franklin, everybody you can imagine is in this documentary called The Language of Music. It is a must watch for anybody on both sides of the coin. And Chris, where is that available? Is that on Netflix or something? It's or available online. Just do a search for The Language of Music, Tom Dowd story, you'll find it fine. Um, obviously Tommy passed away. Actually all of us, Dickie, all of us were together when all of our phones blew up. Uh, with the news, we were all in the control room in my studio when we got the news he passed. Uh, his daughter, Dana, though, is carrying on his, his legacy. 
but this this documentary i cannot say enough about how much it teaches on both sides the music where it came from how it did it includes things like Ahmed Erdogan and everything, the start of Atlantic Record, who, when I had my studio in Florida, I got this strange call from somebody going, look, I've got this 56 Apex reel to reel. And I just say, you have a what? And the guy goes, oh, you know what I'm talking about? And I said, yeah, of course I do. And he goes, well, if you've got a truck, you can have it. And he gives me the address, which was out on Longboat Key, Florida, which is a very, it's still a very exclusive location. The gate's open. I go in. I hear beautiful piano playing and I come around the corner and it's the real, real playing. Who is it? One of the original founders of the label. There he is right there. He gave it to me for free with all the paperwork and said he was getting rid of it to move a grand piano in. And I racked that up and actually some of Dickie's stuff ended up getting mastered to that original Aphex tube reel to reel. Very, very cool. Well, very, very cool. Well, I want to thank everybody for showing up today. And um, we'll, we'll have one more meeting before Thanksgiving, I believe, uh, because uh, Wednesday and the day after. So I don't know who's going to show up, but I will be here. Invite your friends. Uh, we won't have any turkey, uh, unfortunately, but maybe bring a drink. And so instead of uh, instead of just sitting there and we'll be drinking, we'll, we'll toast, we'll, uh, we'll 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 share what we have to be thankful for, because we have plenty to be thankful for. And I just want to remind you all that, to, you know, to do uh, to share the links, uh, invite people to come and join us on the panel. Uh, if you if you if you see me on Facebook, you know, if you see this on Facebook or YouTube, give it the thumbs up. Remember to share it. And that's all I could say. And I want to thank you again for being part of my life and being involved in this and making the mastermind group what it is, because without you, I would just be here talking to myself. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the fact that I'm not doing that. So you make it happen. I'll see you guys again uh, next week, same time, same place. Uh, we're going to stop the live recording right now, but we'll stick around for a little while longer. So I want to thank you and uh, stay safe and stay healthy. And we'll see you again next week.